Hi, this is Mike Morton from The Gift, and you are listening to Sonic Perspectives. About 15 years ago, Mike Morton and one of his mates joined forces to produce a prog album. It took a couple of years to come out, but when it did, Awake and Dreaming was very well received. But little did they know that it would be the start of a roller coaster ride in the world of music, as the band called The Gift tried to find its own gift and itself, and the band members tried to do the same. I'm Mark Boardman of Sonic Perspectives, and today we're talking with the Gift founder, writer, singer, all-around musician, Mike Morton, as he joins us to talk about the band and its new record called Antenna. Mike, welcome to Sonic Perspectives. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> First of all, I've got to ask, where did the name The Gift come from? Right. Well, you know, you're the first person that's ever asked me that question. And there's a very simple answer. I took it from a movie, an American movie set in uh, in the bayou called The Gift, starring Kate Blanchett, if I remember, who played a psychic who was used to investigate serial killings. So it was a pretty dark movie. But I just always thought, that's a great name for a band. But at the time, I didn't have a band. So as soon as the, 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 the recording project for Awakened Dreaming kicked off, I said, I'm going to call this a gift. So there you are. That's where it came from. But also I chose it because it's, it's evocative. It, you know, it talks about talent, but it also talks about you know, offering a present to people. I just like the, the positive ring, I guess. A positive ring about mm. a movie of... The Bayou's <laughs> and Serial Killing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a prog band. Yes, there's something that doesn't quite all fit together there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's true. Some, a positive name taken from a dark film. Yeah, well, well there we are. That's a it, contradiction. It happens. Yeah. So give us a bit more info. I'm, I'm assuming that a fair number of our listeners here are Americans and may not be that familiar with the gift. Just how did the band come about? The band was a slow genesis, if you'll pardon the word. Um, it came about, essentially, I've been in bands on and off all my adult life since I was uh, about 21. I, I studied as an actor and did a degree in drama, and I thought that was the route I was going to take. But... I realized in studying theater arts that I was more interested in the singing and the musical side than the building a character side. So I just gravitated naturally towards towards music. And um, I was in a series of bands in the 80s, not prog bands, I have to say. They were more evocative of the time. So I was in a band in the early 80s that was reminiscent of the new romantic bands that were around at the time, like Duran Duran and and Spandau Ballet from the UK, slightly more commercial. And then I was in more mainstream rock bands in the 80s and 90s and always 
enjoyed it. But I had this, I, I, to be completely honest, I, prog music was pretty much stigmatized in the UK for decades. And I don't know if you've got the same perspective on it in the States, but when the new wave came along in the late 70s, prog was derided. And Rick Wakeman once joked that if you wanted to order a prog album from about 1979 onwards, you had to ask for it in a brown paper bag. <laughs> yeah. and they kept it under the counter in the record store. And that's not too much of an exaggeration. I kind of suppressed my love of prog because it was very, very unfashionable. So fast forward to, uh, shall we say, the early noughties, 2003, a, a chap that I'd been in several bands with called Leroy James, who was a good friend of mine. I went to him and I said, listen, I've written the beginnings of this piece, but you'd have to call it progressive rock. And I kind of winced and gave him almost an apologetic smile. And uh, he said, well, you should do it. And so he encouraged me to do it. So the first incarnation of the gift was just a studio project, which was an outpouring of two things. My love for prog that I'd suppressed. I wanted to write a long form epic. I'm a massive Genesis fan. I wanted to do my suppers ready. And that became Awakened Dreaming. So that was the first thing. And the second thing, was uh, I wanted to express some ideas that were pretty pacifist in in in, in leaning because the wake and dreaming is a, an anti-war piece. So it was purely a statement of you might say political comment, uh, but also a long nurtured ambition to do prog. That was stage one. Then things went. They paused for a while because we were busy with our lives and our families and making money and other pursuits. Fast forward to the second album. Um, can, I can, found we, can we stop right there sure. for just a second? Yeah. Um, am I correct that Awakened Dreaming in its initial incarnation was what, about 35 minutes or so? Or 45 <laughs> minutes? And the, the, yes. And they Very wanted nice. it to be longer. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you exactly what happened there. We presented it to a label called Cyclops, which was the only label doing progressive rock in the early 2000s in the UK. And they said, it's great, but it's not long enough for a prog album because it was one self-contained piece, which was 42 minutes long, to be mm -hmm. precise. And the guy said to us, can you make it longer? And we said, well, we're not going to make the piece longer because it's got its own integrity. We're not going to um, extend it gratuitously. Uh, we'll write something else. So the original idea was just to write another 10 minutes worth of music to make the record company happy with the duration of the album. And that morphed into a more like a 20-minute piece called Fountains of Ash. So, so what we eventually released was over an hour long. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. Now, when um, that album came out, and it was well-received, a lot of people heard it and, and thought it was very good. Did you have the idea, let's go ahead, get some other band members so that we can do some live shows and get out there and promote this thing? Yeah, I was really, really keen to do that. I said to Leroy, uh, let's be a fully-fledged band and do precisely what you've described. I was motivated not only to gig it, but also to do it quite theatrically with a sort of low-budget Pink Floyd presentation, you know, props and slides and make it audio-visual. Um, and what occurred was he wasn't motivated to do that because he was finding life rather difficult economically at the time. He said, there's not enough money in this. So after about a year of trying to persuade him to do that, he just was reluctant, not because he didn't love me as a guy because we're great friends and not because he didn't believe in the music because he did, but he just felt he had to put his energies elsewhere. So... Looking back now, it's quite weird. I decided to just put the gift on ice because I couldn't get Leroy to support me. In a way, I sometimes ask myself the question, now, why didn't I ask other people? Because it, that could have been a viable way of making it a full band and going live. 
but I just felt it was so much a part of me and him that I iced it for a few years. Very briefly, um, I wasn't a happy man over those years, partly because um, uh, the, the financial crisis hit in 2008. I'm self-employed. I had to just work hard to make money. And I didn't really make music. But the net result of that was I was missing Awake and Dreaming, feeling I had unfinished business with it, and also really not very happy because I wasn't making music. So the result of that rather low period was a bunch of songs that I then took to a guy called David Lloyd. And I did exactly the same thing as I'd done with Leroy, which was as a two-man team, we created it entirely on our own. And on that case, we used my son Joseph, who was 17 at the time, to do the drums. So in, in summary, the first two iterations of the GIF were pure studio projects uh, created by a duo, effectively, with some guests. And then I, I got itchy. Uh, I got the itch to, to do it properly. So after the second album, Land of Shadows, we became a band. And with that six-piece band, we released Why the Sea is Salt three years ago. And now, we for the last four years, we've been a what I call a proper band. Proper band, I'm sure. So that's kind of the evolution of, of things. Mm -hmm. It was always my desire to do live work, and that's what we're doing. When you, when you started working on Land of Shadows, uh, at what point did that occur since that's, I mean, it came out eight years after the first album did? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at what point, sorry, at what point did we start working on Land of Shadows? Yes. Or, sorry. <clears throat> okay. 2000 as I started writing the material in 2008 mm -hmm. but I but I built it up privately on my own on guitar and keyboards and made rough demos of all the songs just me over two years and so I, the the inception of the recording process with Dave Lloyd was in 2010 we don't do things quickly <laughs> so all of 2010 11 and half of 2012 two and a half years we took to do it because we were fitting it in with everything else um and then we waited to find another deal and then we waited some time to find the right mix so it wasn't until the end of 2013 that it was ready to roll mm -hmm. and we brought it out uh, early 2014 so it's been a slow yeah slow evolution it's been prog. That's very <laughs> prog in its own way. Yep. In Land of Shadows, um, you get a piece mm -hmm. called The Comforting Cold, mm -hmm. which is, you could say, a take on the Lazarus story, or at least a, it's about a man who dies and is brought back to life. Yep. That's perhaps a part of who you are in terms of talking about religious imagery and religious concepts. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by the religious dimension to life. Um, I was raised as a Presbyterian, a Protestant <clears throat> child by my father and mother who were devoted, devout Christians. And so I was born into a family where faith in something bigger than ourselves, faith in God, was just taken as a given. I went through what you might say is a conventional self-exploration when I was a teenager and questioned all that and arrived at a place where I wasn't sure anymore. And I've been vacillating throughout my whole adult life between faith, faith and uh, doubt. <laughs> um, but what's 
and so therefore, very often when it comes to writing songs, I will be consciously or unconsciously, but mainly consciously, mainly I decide to choose a theme that raises questions about immortality and divinity and whether there is more than this physical world. You know, you might say the proper study of the religious person. And uh, so examples of that might be on the same album, Walk Into the Water is a meditation on what happens when we die. Mm -hmm. And leaves, leaves, it ends with a question mark. We don't know there is mystery in that song, uh, but hope. Uh, and and um, The Comforting Cold was originally called Lazarus because I absolutely, without any a qualification, wanted to try and explore whether bringing someone back to life was a kindness. It always fascinated me as a young chap that Lazarus was a, a wonderful example of you know the miracles that Jesus performed. But I just had this ticklish thought, this provocative thought, which was, well, who asked him if he wanted to come back? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that just really compelled me. And so we, I, I wrote it and it was entitled Lazarus. It was absolutely a modern day Lazarus with the question, don't, shouldn't we ask the departed whether they want to come back to this earthly plane? Uh, and, and, and so then I found out that Stephen Wilson, because I wrote it, actually, at this, I hadn't heard Porcupine Tree at that point, and someone played me Dead Wing by Porcupine Tree, and I saw, oh, gosh, someone's got there first. He's got this beautiful song on the, on the Dead Wing album called Lazarus, which I think is a, a metaphorical title, whereas mine was a, a kind of almost literal mm -hmm. use of the word. Lazarus and I thought drat he's nicked it so <laughs> we, uh, so I thought better come up with something else and I just like the idea that what people see as the coldness which could stand for a lot of things but essentially the the threatening and disturbing nature of dying cold rather than warm you know um, might in fact be comforting for people and so for, for people of faith and I realize we're getting into big topics here maybe that's a puzzling thing. To, that's a puzzling position to take to be questioning uh, such an idea of immortality or resurrection. Uh, and for people who have no faith, perhaps it's uh, equally uh, confusing because they. So, for example, some of the guys in the band they they are, you know, confirmed atheists, and they 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 sometimes say to me, "There's always this spiritual quasi-religion dimension in your lyrics. Why is that? Do you need that?" And they question me about that. And I say, well, I can't really stop myself because they're questions that vex me and, and uh, preoccupy me. So in a roundabout way, I suppose I'm saying that uh, the comforting cold is directly related to the things I think about in life and, and directly uh, based on my early religious upbringing. In yeah. uh, the songs where you use the imagery of that sort, one thing mm -hmm. that strikes me is there is there's usually no black hole which can happen for those people who lack faith instead there is at least a glimmer of hope there may even be some redemption for the person yep. or people in the song yep. which to my way of thinking says while you're questioning and thinking and reaching out you're still hoping that there's something good out there completely 100% right. You've read that very well. <laughs> um, yes, 100% agreement. My mother, um, I don't mind talking about this. You've got a gift of interviewing because I'm, I'm, I'm talking about deeper things than I would with other people. Um, my mother passed away of cancer in 2013. And uh, the last meaningful thing she said to me, I said, how, how do you feel about it, mum? And we knew she was going. 
and she knew she was going and she was very calm about it and I said how do you feel about what's, what's imminent mum and she said and I quote I don't know precisely where I'm going but I know it will be good and I've just you know that was well, to say it was moving and inspiring is an understatement and one of the last things she said to me was I said and I asked her again how are you feeling about what's coming? She said, full of joy. And that is a, one of the most amazing legacies I've ever been given, which is that sense of optimism. So yes, there is hope and there is redemption. I don't know quite what it is in me that always feels that, but most gift songs, well, a lot of gift songs explore dark things like Comforting Cold explores death. A song on Awakened Dreaming, Founders of Ash explores domestic abuse. Awakened Dreaming itself explores war and there are other things on the new albums that explore things like consumerism and the dishonesty of politicians, but always I can't shake this fundamental bedrock, which is that things will work out okay. Um, and it's not a decision, it just comes out, I think it's spontaneously when I write lyrics. We should mention that indeed your parents were both strong people of faith Mm -hmm. but they weren't just average Joes on the street either, that your mother was, what, the vice mayor of Edinburgh, uh, and that they, your your father was yes, was yeah. uh, a higher up, not only in church councils, but in the Ch Church of Scotland for a number of years. Correct. Yeah, yeah. My dad was fairly senior um, in the Church of Scotland, and his role was an ecumenical role, which for those that don't feel familiar with the, uh, that kind of language is essentially trying to break down barriers between faiths and denominations and and he traveled the world um, really engaged you might say in in um, a form of diplomacy with uh, Christians throughout the world so yeah he was he was senior and very respected in Scotland and I, I have to say an absolutely incredible preacher just incredible and you could say well I'm not exactly by uh, impartial but he was I think Objectively, I can say that he was as, uh, an astonishing man when he spoke. And that was a huge inspiration to me. My mother, before she was uh, head, well, she wasn't exactly the vice mayor, but she was close. She was, she was high up in the local council in Edinburgh, uh, the capital of Scotland, and a senior official. Before that, she taught English. So <clears throat> I've always felt that my parents were special people. And I feel very blessed to have, have had a good relationship with them because they raised us in faith, but they also raised us to think for ourselves and they raised us philosophically uh, to think hard and question everything. And, 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 and I'm very grateful for that. They always encouraged me to be musical as well, even though they didn't have a musical bone in their bodies. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't work out where it came from. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your your parents in the United States would be called fairly liberal or progressives yes, uh, in the way they would. thought about life, the way they approached it, the way they dealt with mm. the equality of people and all that sort of thing, or at least based on what I've read about them. Correct. Absolutely right. Yeah. Which may explain why you get to some of the topics that you get into and the the anti-war and other social issues that you deal with in the gift. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's right. They just encouraged us to think independently. And there's a trend right now, both sides of the Atlantic, for, for, for people to 
talk almost disparagingly about social justice warriors and the liberal elite. And there's a tendency, I think, to dismiss that as self-indulgence and as virtue signaling. And I think that's a really dangerous development. My, my parents were committed to social justice, and I don't think that should be dismissed as, uh, as a foolish dream. So um, I think when, you, when you've been raised that way and, and you come to write a song, it's not very interesting for me to write a song about a car or about, you know, dancing in the nightclub or, you know, that kind of, sort mm-hmm. of superficial thing. I just think you want to try and tell a story. I always try and tell a story, but um, tell a story that has some kind of commentary or at least attempts to uh, ask some questions about big issues, if you, for want of a better expression. Yeah. You certainly have delved into that, even as, as I say, with uh, the comfort in cold. I mean, death is a pretty huge issue. And yeah. death as it compares to life, which is sort of what this is about, that, that's getting into something pretty meaty. Do you think that yeah. that people can deal with those kinds of topics when they're in there to listen to music? That's a, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer to it. Can people deal with those topics? Well, maybe what happens, I don't know. I think some people can't, or some people don't want to, and other people might think, well, hey, I don't want that in my music. But there's a, little, a whole bunch of other people, and I think they're drawn to the progressive rock genre, who take music and artistic expression very seriously. Uh, it's more than just background noise to them. It's more than just a commodity to be consumed. It's more than, you know, pop. Um, so I think they're really game for it. Um, but what I was going to say was, I think that the power of music can somehow lend those difficult, challenging topics like life and death or something similar. It can lend them a, a, a sweetness or a, an accessibility that mightn't otherwise be present if, if you were just talking about it or were still lecturing about it. Mm-hmm. So I've not really thought about this. You can ask the questions, that's for sure. I think that people will accept pretty much anything as long as the melody and the musical environment makes it accessible for them. And with some songs, as long as you can tap your toe to it as well. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And I don't think everybody listens to lyrics. You know, some of my family members, they don't, they just find lyrics are an interesting tonal element of everything else that's going on. They're not necessarily trying to extricate too much uh, literal meaning from them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is kind of useful with the likes of yes, let's be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. Uh, I love John Anderson's lyrics back in the early 70s, but the, he, even he said they were tone poems, which is a kind of kind way of saying brilliant gibberish. Yeah, the, I, I a lot of bollocks offend. there. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, don't want to offend yes fans. But <laughs> I, was always, I was always more for the guys that tried hard. I, I like people at reach. I like lyricists that reach. You know, they'll push themselves. Peter Hamill in Van de Graaff Generator always put really dense stuff in his lyrics. And I think they're brilliant as a result, but they're not yes. easy listening. Peter Gabriel, when he uses surrealism and his wordplay, and even when he was more direct in later life, when he started talking more openly without metaphor about human relationships, he's much more interesting than these guys that just throw cosmic nothings in the air. I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understand. Mm-hmm. So let, let, let's go back for a second to the era around Land of Shadows and leaving, leading up to Why the Sea is Salt. Yeah. At what point, when was your first live gig doing it with The Gift? I can tell you exactly when the first live gig doing it with The Gift was. We, we, in, nine, in 2013, 
we played a pretty historic venue in South London called the Half Moon, mm-hmm. which for those that don't know over in the States was where bands like The Who and Hendrix and Floyd did some of their early gigs. And now it's kind of a theme pub with, you know, great food, but they still got a good music venue in the back. It's become very trendy and um, uh, it doesn't look anything like it did back then, but it's still a fairly respected place. And we got the opportunity to play there. Uh, we were really nervous. The lineup had five people in it at the time. There was myself, David Lloyd, with whom I collaborated on Land of Shadows, my son, Joseph Morton, who played drums on Land of Shadows, and two other guys, a guy called Sam Matucci, our original keyboard player, and a chap called Scott James on drums. Uh, that was the first iteration of the, of the full gift lineup. And we played the whole of Land of Shadows and the whole of Awakened Dreaming. Can you imagine that? We played nearly two hours. Oh, my gosh. It was our first ever gig to about... 50 people <laughs> in this small venue, this small but important venue. We were so nervous because we'd never played live before. We'd rehearsed our teeth out doing it. Um, uh, and it went down really well. But it was, in a way, looking back, it was a fairly humble beginning, really, um, because we weren't known. We weren't known for live work. That was the first gig. Yeah. But did you feel positive enough about the experience to say, yeah, let's go from here. Let's keep her going. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I've, I've always, always had this sense of mission. If you were, if you were to work closely with me, you'd know, and the guys in the band would agree that I can get quite driven about things. And if I've decided I'm going to do something, then hell, it's going to happen. So, uh, yes, it was a positive experience, but even if it hadn't been, I'd have said, right, next gig. <laughs> I just, I've always been convinced. And I think you have to be, that what we do is useful and what we do is valuable. And so I just saw that first gig as the, as the first step towards more. And, uh, and so it's, through the rest of that year, we did one more gig and then there was a gap and then we started gigging in earnest from sort of summer 2014. And we haven't actually stopped since then. We do about 25 gigs a year, right. I'd say. Yeah. Now, when, oh, when you started, uh, you, you talked about with Awakened Dreaming when it came out, you were going to go out with... With Leroy, you were going to hopefully do it with a little Floydian or maybe even a little Peter Gabriel aspect to it. Did you do that when you finally went and did a live gig? (laughs) No, we didn't um, because uh, it was going to cost too much money. We used some slides, uh, but we didn't have stage adornment. We didn't do... We didn't do it to the scale I'd wanted to, and we've still yet to do that. But what I will say uh, is that I've I've played around with putting the occasional mask on. (laughs) I was wondering. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've put a few masks on on some songs, and I've done a bit of makeup, and I've flirted with that theatrical thing. The other guys in the band, to be completely candid, are not sure about it. Some of them think that uh, it's a bit roots it in the 70s and what looked kind of cool and surreal then looks a bit hokey and funny now and maybe we should drop it and be more contemporary which usually means less theatrical um others like it the short answer to your question is no i haven't realized that uh, theatrical scope yet but i'm still trying <laughs> <laughs> we, we should also like getting the resources yeah. <laughs> we should also mention that for some years, you were in a Genesis tribute band, so you yeah. were putting on masks like Peter Gabriel. I was. Well, I was being Peter Gabriel. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, and uh, that was great. So you could say, Mark, that I scratched that itch. <laughs> Maybe I don't need to do it anymore. That was great fun. Uh, that was really good fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so perhaps my, my desire to do that has, has diminished a bit now. Yeah. Or maybe you're just yeah. getting a little older or something. That too. That uh, happens. Uh, it does, it does. Why the Sea, to, sea of Salt came in 2016. Mm -hmm. And at this point, as you mentioned, the band starts firming up into what we now know as the gift. How did that occur? Um, well... Towards the end of 2000, no, autumn of 2015, we had a parting of ways with the original drummer who played in that gig I told you about, The Half Moon, and Sam Mattiucci, the original keyboard. They had another band, and, and they felt they couldn't sustain both of them, so with some regret, they, they left. So we were back down to a three-piece, myself, David Lloyd, and the bass player, Steph Dickus, who had joined the previous year. Uh, we proactively advertised for a replacement drummer and a replacement keyboard player. And this is where a piece of what I only consider to be amazing synchronicity, serendipity maybe is a better word, happened. I advertised on a band forum for a keyboard player. And I have to tell you, in the UK, it's very hard to find keyboard players. And it's even harder to find keyboard players who have the chops to play prog and who want mm -hmm. to play it. And, and everybody knows, you know, you get the keyboard player, then you consider yourself blessed. So what actually happened was I said to Dave, right, I'm going to hunt for the guitarist and the keyboard player. Sorry, the drummer and the keyboard player. And uh, put an ad in this music forum called Band Mix. And within 24 hours, my brief was quite specific. I said, looking for someone that likes progressive rock. And within 24 hours, a man called Gabriella Baldocci got in touch with me through this, this forum, just through a message online, saying he liked Gentle Giant, Genesis, King Crimson and Queen, and was a classical pianist. And I just thought, this guy sounds amazing. Hope he's not an a-hole, you know. So, <laughs> so I spoke. <laughs> so I spoke to because that you've got to get on with the guys as well. So I spoke to him on the phone, and we, and it was bizarre, Mark, because I mean I'm quite chatty as you can tell from this, but um, if if there's an if there's not a decent rapport with you and somebody else, you you know quite quickly whether you want to audition a guy. But what I thought would be a ten-minute conversation, as I was just sounding him out, became an hour-long conversation. And it was like I'd known him for years. I know that sounds cliched, but it's absolutely true. I just thought I feel so comfortable with this man and I haven't even met him. So we arranged to uh, audition him and that happened about a week later. In the meantime, uh, a guy called Neil Heyman, who worked in another band called Concordat, who are on our same label, same yes. label as us, mm -hmm. uh, asked me about how Concordat, he asked me how Concordat, his band, could get more live work because he'd seen the gift as getting a lot of live work and wanted to move into that space. So I met him that same week that I spoke to Gabri, and uh, I just liked him so much. I said, listen, I don't want to take you away from Concordat, but you want to sing in, sorry, play in two bands? And he said, well, I'll come and audition. So it was just one of those amazing periods of life where two gentlemen stepped forward, one within 24 hours and one... Uh, I made a suggestion to that wasn't in his mind that he might want to play with the gift as well. We auditioned them on the same night and bang, it just worked. So the chemistry was right. So by about, I think November 2000, and, let me get this right, 2015, we were a fully fledged band. And so we started playing live in 2016 and we worked immediately on the, on the material together that would become Why the Sea is Salt. And Gabri, the keyboard player, brought his classical um, understanding and, and skill and his, his, his playing technique and that made the music very symphonic as you'll know from listening to it big long tracks like at sea and 
Tuesday's Child. That year of 2016 was, was a really happy year for the band. A watershed year. A watershed year. Every, suddenly, we, everybody liked each other. There were no tensions. There were no conflicts of interest. Everyone was in one band, with the exception of Neil, who could manage Concordat. And we just, all of a sudden, the, 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 um, the momentum was right. And that led to the album. I think we've left out one member, though. Because your original collaborator, Leroy James, came back for that as well. Well done, yeah. So I should have said, um, that was remarkable. In, so what happened was, Gabri and Neil joined on keyboards and drums, respectively. And Leroy, who for many years has said, love you, man, but it's not for me, phoned me up and said, I think I might want to rejoin the gift. And my first response was, oh, you want back in now? Now we're doing well. I get it. No, but no, but I, I, that, I was just pulling his leg. Uh, but there was an element of that. He said, this is now a viable concern, you know. I really want to join again. And I said, you know, you don't have to ask. So, yeah, he joined us. He joined us in the January of that year, 2016. And a month later, we, we played a gig in London. Uh, and that was brilliant. It, it, and that was the final jigsaw piece, yeah. It, it's not just that Gabriel added these classical aspects, which, which he does. And by the way, there is plenty of opportunity to find his music, his classical performances online. But yeah. now you've got two guitarists in there as well, mm -hmm. which really adds some depth to the, the whole production. It does. And I don't know, it does. And uh, they can do twin lead harmony like Lizzie if they want to, but they can also sort of swap solos and they have very different tones and styles as all guitarists do. So they, they, it's just really satisfying to hear that contrast and variety in the sound now. But one thing I should say, because it adds to the picture, is that not only did I have history with Leroy with Awakened Dreaming, there was an even older history between David and Leroy, the two guitarists, because when they were teenagers back in the 1970s, they played in a band together. They played in a hard rock band together. So for them, for me, there was this kind of closure of Leroy coming back to the fold, which was joyous. But for those two, they were looking across the stage at each other, having not kind of had that dual axe attack for like, <laughs> I don't know, 35 years or something. It was, it was well, maybe not that long, but a good three decades. So there was so much that made the band exciting and enjoyable. It was great, really great. Did you feel like your musical options were even greater at that point? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we thought we could do anything we wanted to, really, in terms of style. Uh, yeah. And that, just very briefly, that leads me to something we consider to be very important to the gift, is that people generally classify us as prog, and that's right that they do that. But we've always been about songs, and, we've, and so the musical options that lay before us when we had that lineup were, well, we could go any direction we wanted to because the, the quality of the musicianship is very high. We could play anything we like, and so we, we don't want to limit ourselves to the label necessarily. You mentioned that, uh, and this is something you've said many times before in print and otherwise about the gift of being about songs. Mm -hmm. You sort of have taken that even more literally certainly yep. put more emphasis on that in terms of antenna mm -hmm. am i right in that you're absolutely right the antenna was a conscious decision to challenge our songwriting by which i mean 
we, once you've done a long form song or a big epic, you realize that it's actually not so hard because you're not being constrained by time. Um, but there's a kind of beauty and a challenge in the, in the idea of writing a song that fits a three to five minute format. That's its own discipline. So what we said was, let's just push the songs to the fore and let's not think about genre at all. And the results, the album. <clears throat> and I think that there's quite a big, well, again, it's difficult to be objective about your own music. But in my opinion, there's a good, diverse palette of styles and sounds on Antenna. Yeah, we just said, let's write the best songs we can. And there was a bit of a worry in the band that it wouldn't be prog enough for the fans. But so far, with all the pre-orders and the, the reviews we've had so far, we needn't have worried because it seems to be being received very well. Yeah. But it was a bit of, we considered it a bit of a risk, to be honest. Sure. Shorter songs, uh, or maybe a more direct sound. So yeah, yeah, definitely a conscious decision to be song-based. In some ways, isn't it harder, at least more of a challenge, to write a good three, four, five minute song to get everything crammed into a short period of time as opposed to having the, well, we've got half an hour. Let's see where we go from here. I, I would say it is. Yes, I think it probably is. Um, I think it's also challenging. That said, it's also challenging to write an epic of sort of 15 to 20 minutes length that is consistently engaging and has cohesion. I hear a lot of um, long prog tracks that seem to be long for long's sake. And if you take some of the masters, the, the, the masterful examples of the genre, like um, Supper's Ready or Close to the Edge, two shining examples, they're different. Supper's Ready is really seven songs with beautiful segues linking them, mm -hmm. but it works so well. Close to the Edge is like symphonic music in the truest sense. It's almost like a fugue in that it starts with a pattern, it puts it into different iterations, it, it has a break in the middle and it returns to that musical motif at the end. So they are examples of long songs that I think are not easy to write because they have great consistency and they have great integrity to them and they're always interesting. That said, I think it is harder to do really interesting things in a, in, in a three to five minute format. So, yeah. I, and I tell, the band that I think did that very well, although not very commercially, was Gentle Giant. Mm -hmm. Gentle Giant can do some really elaborate things and take you on a musical odyssey, but you, you think, well, I've been listening for a long time. Then you actually look at the track listing and you realize that that track was maybe only four minutes long. Mm -hmm. So coming back to Antenna, the beef was, yeah, let's let's make the best shorter songs we can, but let's try and make them as dynamic and um, as structured and, and maybe as unpredictable as we can within that format. I don't know whether we succeeded all the time, but that was the intention. Yeah, well, I think you did. Um, having heard oh, the, thank you. the the mm. CD myself, uh, the mere fact that a, a, a few of the songs, and we certainly can can refer to the the lead off track, we are connected. That's a basic rock song, and that's, it's a rock song. <laughs> that's a little bit of a surprise, but not an unpleasant yeah. one because it's still got your voice. It's still got elements of the gift in there. It's just let's try this aspect of our personality this time. Yep. Yes, and that was really daunting for us, just to do a four on the floor, distorted guitar stomp in mid tempo. Uh, and rock out and not try and complicate it. 
And uh, for me, that serves as the taster for what's to come on the album. But I think it's fun because if you don't know us and you hear that song, you say, OK, we're going to hear some good straight rock for the next hour. Well, then the next track surprises you. And then the one after that, I think, is different again. And it's a bit like a box of chocolates. Yes. Um, you know, it's just different flavors all the time. But yeah, absolutely. We just, we just wanted to rock. Um, but actually, people wanted to make it longer. I was one of the guilty parties. I said, <laughs> we could have a synth solo here, and we could end in 7-8. And the, you know, people just gave me withering looks. I said, Mike, back to brief, mate. Get back to brief. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and sometimes, as you'll know from just for the listeners, there are two tracks on the album that are close to the 10-minute mark. One's called Changeling, and one's called Closer, which is a pun because it closes the album. But um, and they are longer. But again... That just happened because it was. It felt that they should be longer. We weren't trying to do that. It was an organic thing. And even mentioning those two songs, they what the the first has two sections to it, and the other has three sections to it. So it's yeah. like you have yeah. taken in each one different different approaches, and then put them together in a way that they they flow. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, and in fact, the, the, the way those songs are written, Changeling, which has two main sections and a linking section, the first section was a standalone song, as was the last section. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun if we put them together because they, they could tell a different story? So we glued those together. And I th hope that we got away with making it sound, you know, natural. And with Closer, the other track, those three sections were written as experiments. And then David played them to me and I pointed out they could all run as one. So they were stuck together, mm -hmm. but I think, but that's okay as long as the, there is a, a sense of integrity between the pieces. And I hope there is on those. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm. Closer to me, when I listened to it, and I've listened to it several times, that's mm -hmm. sort of the proggy song on the album. Yeah, We're closing is. off with the gift doing prog for you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, it starts with more of an 80s vibe, I'd say, with a sort of a, yeah. a, almost like Peter Gabriel-esque percussion. But then it takes off about three minutes in and it stays in the sort of epic stratosphere after that, mm -hmm. with the big long solos. Yeah, I'm glad you like that. I mean, uh, very fun. much. Yeah. When yeah. I listen to the third track, which is Back to Eden, another oh, yes. one of those religious uh, yep. allusions, yep. I went, wait a minute, this is the Gifts hit single. <laughs> Thank you. Well, actually, it was written like that, to be honest. I said to the guys, let's write a song with a serious uh, idea. The idea back to Eden is that, you know, as you get older, you start to lose your optimism. But uh, don't fear, because wherever we go, we're going to go back to somewhere really special. So it's a bit like um, a romantic poem by Wordsworth called Ode on Intimations of Mortality, when mm -hmm. he suggests that the child remembers its celestial beginnings and then soon forgets it as it grows up, but then will return to it at the end. It's all it's a bit like the seasons of man idea. So that's kind of a heavy concept again. Yeah. But I say, wouldn't it be fun if instead of putting that in some kind of portentous musical background, we set it against a finger tapping pop song? It's a pop song. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a pop song. Yeah. And the inspiration there was kind of the cure. And also a band of water boys that I love. We wanted to write, write a folky pop song with a heavy lyric. <laughs> so I'm glad you picked it up. Well, we don't know whether it's going to be played on commercial radio. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. going to have to strong arm those people, the DJs, yeah. just like they did yeah. back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, where's our plugger when we need it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to ask this because, as you mentioned, Antenna is sort of about human connections. Uh, 
some which which work, some which don't, uh, some which you're hoping, especially towards the end on the closer, sort of people drifted away from each other, but there's still hope that maybe we can connect again. Your father died around the time you started working on this, a man who was involved in establishing connections, as you said, between people. Is there any tie in there? I think there is a, there is a tie in because, well, I wasn't consciously thinking of my father as such when I was writing those songs, but I think what happens, what I do know for certain is that as you age, different types of losses start to play into your life. It could be literally losing a loved one, a parent or somebody you know, but it all can be lost. It could be loss of youth. It could be loss of your faculties. It could be soft losses like not seeing your kids so much because they're making a life of their own. And sometimes it can feel like life is uh, contracting a little bit and some of the things that were so dear to you are falling off or fading away. Um, uh, and I think what really gets us through that is focusing on the things that matter, which is the deep connections that keep us alive and keep us keep us going and, and give us a sense of life's meaning and make life worth it. Um, so in truth, I don't think I was consciously thinking of my dad when I wrote those songs, but I think because he represented so much hope and he was always, he was a great connector with people and he was always saying, we've got to keep communicating, we've got to keep communicating, no matter how difficult it is, we've got to keep communicating. So I guess it's just so much in my bloodstream that uh, that spirit, the spirit of my father and my mother was probably right coming through in that, in that, in those lyrical themes about connection. Yeah. And I, something I'll share very quickly sure. uh, is that my father uh, developed a brain tumor and um, to begin with, he just got confused. It presented itself like uh, dementia. But then they treated him and he got a few months respite before eventually it, it took him. Uh, and and his, in his months of lucidity, he used to philosophize and he used to say to me, Mike, it's incredible that any of us understand each other at all. <laughs> and he wasn't being negative or cynical. He was saying, we're so different. We're so idiosyncratic. We each have such different frames of the world that the mere fact that we can communicate so well as human beings is a miracle in itself. And again, these are the things that I keep all the time. When things get tough and life becomes challenging, I just remember these, these words of wisdom, I guess. It's yeah. important to have words of wisdom to keep us going. Yeah, yeah. You're at an age where some loss is going to occur. Now, beyond the loss that you had of your parents, that's mm -hmm. something we all deal with. You're, mm -hmm. you're at an age where, you know, the body loses some of its strength and flexibility. Um, mm -hmm. As you say, you lose some of the connections with the kids because they've got to form mm -hmm. their own lives. One of the things that happens sometimes when we lose those connections and we feel like we're falling is we establish new connections so we don't fall all the way down but instead catch ourselves mm -hmm. have you made new connections yeah yeah i've um I've, I've i've have friends that i didn't have as friends when i was younger and this might sound almost too trite but it's the truth is that the guys in the gift are like brothers to me and they and with the exception of Leroy whom I've known for years the other four of them I've only known for a handful of years and 
they're really, really important connections to me. I've reached out to old friends who I've lost touch with. New people have come into my life. One of the great things about doing a musical project, especially a musical project that tends to attract people who are quite serious and who are quite searching people, because that's what I believe about progressive music. It tends to attract people who question things a lot, they have a depth to them, um, is that you meet great people. And, and, and the people we've met on the, through social media, yourself included, Mark, who have brought great richness to my life, it's quite, it's wonderful. Take Paul Hanlon, the guy you mentioned. I didn't know Paul until about four years ago, but he and I are having conversations about faith now. You and I have similar conversations. There's other people I, I won't name because it's private. Maybe I shouldn't have named Paul, but there's so many people I don't know face to face, but who have had meaning in my life. So I think those new connections are absolutely vital and not just connecting with other people, but also connecting with bigger things than that, connecting with your purpose, connecting with a higher power. If you if you have faith in that, all those things make, make um, I'm feeling strangely articulate about this, but they make life sweeter and, and more rewarding. I think that's the stuff of life, really. Mm. You know, when, when we come to the end, I don't think that, well, no one's going to say on their deathbed, I wish I'd worked harder. And I don't think anyone on their deathbed is going to say, look at the money I've got in the bank, you know. Uh, I, I think what moves me, I think, is people, when they start to look at the life they've lived, I hope and I imagine most of them ask themselves, how have I helped, what have I contributed, Who's like, who have I loved, and and uh, how much happiness I've spread. Gosh, I, I feel like I'm sounding kind of soppy and Walt Disney, but <laughs> that's, the, that's the only way to put it. Yep. That's what we're here for, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Connection's important. I am, I'm not a musician. I'm not a lyricist. But it seems to me in at least watching your career over the last four or five years, as I have, that these experiences only deepen, make richer what you can do from an artistic standpoint. It probably fits with the other guys in the band, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I fully agree with that. Um, is your point that all these things we discover and all our experiences deepen what we do artistically? Is or kill us, yes. Yeah, or kill us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's well. There's an interesting question around that. If I've understood your your point properly, um, I'm hearing you saying that the more we live, the more it can potentially bring depth to how we express ourselves. Yes. Sometimes it's been said in the past of great artists. It's almost again a platitude that. A younger artist's work is always better than their older work. People say that about David Bowie. They said it about Gabriel. They said it about many, many other artists. You know, as they get older, the, the, the desire to express becomes less keen because maybe they're more contented or maybe the hunger's gone away. And I'd question that, really. I, I think that is that's often thrown around as received wisdom about rock music. I don't know if it's true. My experience is that people tend to become more interesting in every sense when they get older. Mm -hmm. And if they're involved in something artistic, as long as they're still able to use their faculties, uh, there's a deeper meaning to what they offer. Yeah. Um, take someone like Tony Banks. I mean, I'm a huge Genesis fan, as, as you know. 
people say he's not done much recently, but I've listened to his orchestral work, and I think it's just as beautiful in its own way as anything he did with Genesis in what's considered to be the Genesis heyday of the 70s. And I suspect that's just one lazy example for me. There's plenty of other people that are doing great work. Maybe another thing is that because we have a culture of youth, that the marketing or the or the media aspect of things doesn't give it the dominance it needs to. And that's another subject maybe for another time, is yeah. that I think our Western culture is still pretty much afraid of not only death, but doesn't have any real, real way of dealing with aging in a meaningful sense. I don't think there's enough, I don't think there's enough respect to the aging process. That's something I think we've lost. If we ever had it, I'm not But sure. if we ever had it, and you think of, you know, tribal societies, and again, one has to be careful, one doesn't sound like a patronizing Westerner, eulogizing and romanticizing more, um, should we say, basic cultures. But if you look at some cultures like the Aboriginal cultures and, you know, some other cultures like that, they tend to revere their elders. And I think we've lost that, mm -hmm. which is a shame. It is a shame. So, mm -hmm. so Antenna, um, mm. it will be released the 23rd. Well, the gig, the, the, the launch gig is the Sunday, the 23rd, which is the week tomorrow. And, and we will be in the UK, for those that come to the launch gig, there will be pre-copies for people who come to that gig. But the official release date for the rest of the world is Friday the 28th of June. So that's uh, just, what, so what's that, 13 days away. Yeah. Now, for those who, I'm assuming that this is going to play before the 23rd, for those okay. who would like to yeah. come and hit you up for a, a, a CD, where mm -hmm. will you be playing? Uh, where, where will we be playing? Okay, so... You mean who, those who want to actually get the CD at the gig? We, yeah. We're going to be playing in London, south of the river in London, at a really great venue called the Bedford, which has its own miniature version of a Shakespeare Globe Theatre. Oh, cool. Uh, it really is beautiful. It's like a tiny Elizabethan theatre. On Sunday, the 23rd, um, we're going to be playing for about an hour and a half with support from a brilliant cellist called Joe Quayle. Uh, that's what we'll be doing. But, you know, if, I don't know how, how many people listen to you, but it, <laughs> it's an expensive transatlantic flight if you want to come to yeah. from the US. <laughs> uh, the official album is going to be available, as I say, from the 23rd. And um, I can give you links to that if you feel it's appropriate. But, sure, go ahead. Okay, so the album can be purchased on Bandcamp. So you just go to the gift at Bandcamp dot com antenna it can also be purchased from bad elephant our record label which is www.badelephant.co.uk and it can also be purchased on a link from our website which is probably the fastest way to do it which is www.thegiftmusic.com <laughs> you had all that memorized i did yeah you saw that because you can see me through the <laughs> skype screen yeah it's all up here yes see <laughs> i think i got it right. aging yeah. doesn't really cause that much loss at all <laughs> yeah i now, just said it a few times will you have yeah. some gigs coming up in addition to the the one on the 23rd yeah we're well we're going to be playing a few festivals in the summer uh there's going to be one in holland and uh we're waiting to get final confirmation from one in germany dates to be confirmed but they're going to be happening in the summer we were late arrivals to the bills there but the, the confirmed gigs there's going to be a gig uh, it, well, in, in the autumn, we're doing several gigs. We're playing just outside Birmingham, second city in the UK, at a place called the Robin 2 on the 10th of November. We're also playing in London uh, on the 14th of December, just before Christmas, with a band called Sindogs, which is headed by a brilliant guitarist called Zal Clemenson, who used to be the guitarist in the sensational Alex Harvey band, mm -hmm. a 70s uh, titan of a band. 
and uh, there's another gig. Oh, the 7th of December, we're again playing in Birmingham. So our activity towards the end of the year is going to be mainly London and Birmingham, the two big cities. But then in 2020, there's going to be many, many more gigs. Uh, it's a bit quieter on the gig front until later in the year and beyond. Boy, think about that. From the time just after the first album was out, no gigs, the whole thing in flux, and now a new album and lots of gigs through the next year or so. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, tons. And uh, quite a lot of festival appearances in, t in 2020. We, we knew we'd missed out some of the festival gigs this year because we uh, were so busy doing the album. We don't have management, we're self-managed, so we thought we just have to make the album the focus. The gigs will be more modest, lower in quantity, but hopefully higher in quality in, tw in 2019. But then we're going big time for lots of gigs in 2020. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a great contrast to how it used to be. So... Yeah. Pretty, pretty interesting the way things work out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mike Morton is the leader, writer, singer, multi-instrumentalist, and who knows what else with the British <laughs> band The Gift. Their new album, Antenna, comes out at least initially on the 23rd and then officially on the 28th. Mike, can't tell you, thanks so much for being here with us. Been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed talking to you, Mark. Me too. Thank you and, very much. And I am Mark Boardman. For the latest news, reviews, interviews, and more, go to sonicperspectives.com. And as we go out, the lead track from the album, We Are Connected.
Exclusive.